0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hacking into Security, your career-related cybersecurity show. I'm your host, Ricky Burke, the InfoSec recruiter. And regularly, we'll be catching up with a variety of guests from CISOs, entrepreneurs, VCs, new people into the industry, and more. Each sharing their story, industry knowledge, and advice on how others can navigate success in their career. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Hacking Into Security. Today, we're joined by Michael Skelton, also known as Codingo. Michael, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Michael is the Global Head of Security Operations and Researcher Enablement at Bug Crowd. That's quite a mouthful, Michael.
1: <laughs> it's, it's one of those titles that never quite expresses the role.
0: Actually, we'll cut the formalities. I'm not used to calling you Michael. <laughs> <laughs> So Codingo, thank you so much for catching up. I've got a few questions. I'm always keen to share people's journeys, and we've been talking about doing this for a while, but we're finally getting around to doing it. So for those that don't know you, maybe just research your handle because you'll find a lot of interesting stuff from your GitHub accounts to all sorts of stuff online and presentations and your, your bug crowd profile as well. So but delve in deeper personally, first question is, who are you?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm Michael Kadingo. either either is fine. Ex-pen tester, so I was with NCC Group for a couple of years and did quite a lot of bug hunting in that time, made a bit of noise in the bug hunting community and then broke bad and joined the other side. So now I run pen testing and triage efforts at Bug Crowd, among some other things, but pretty diverse security team over here. Okay, cool. And in terms
0: of security, obviously you're at Bug Crowd now. You mentioned a former pen tester, over at NCC. What actually got you into security in the first place?
1: Yeah, (laughs) complicated one. I grew up with hacking. So I'm one of the early, I, I didn't know it was a career. So I actually have a rather eclectic resume. So through school, used to go to 2600, did a lot of that stuff. I guess we can dive into some of that if we want to later. But I played poker for a living originally. So liked the freedom that it offered me working online. Online poker was quite a big thing up till 2010. And then after that, there was an event called Black Friday in poker that basically decimated the market. It made it illegal for US citizens to play online. And a year or two after that, it became illegal for Australian citizens to play online. So I um, went back to traditional IT, became a software dev for a few years until pen testing kind of itched at me. And I wrote security tools and did everything I could to find my way in. And then I've kind of led to here on that journey. That's awesome. And
0: so always been a part of your, I guess stuff whether it's work or, or non-work anyway security
1: yeah yeah well i mean i was financial services developer when i did that so there's a heavy element of understanding security bugs there you know particularly like financial software you need to have a, a high degree of understanding at least of what's possible not necessarily how to execute it but what could happen with certain types of patterns and you know from there incorporate it into the role that i had to help support me into making the jumps that i did
0: okay so before we go Back in time, obviously mentioned your your role at Bug Crowd now. So, what what do you actually do as the global head of security operations and research enablement?
1: Yeah, so (laughs) I mean, I have a rather varied role. So, I manage a team of roughly 40 people with a range of activities. So, a lot of a big portion of what we do is the triage and validation of submissions that come into Bug Crowd. So, we get thousands of submissions a day over our customer base. So, what a lot of people don't realize with bug bounties is that as much as you see in the public programs, there's a huge amount of that under the surface. The private element of bugganis is absolutely massive. And so we're validating what comes in, adding what value we can to it, and then pass it to the customer where it's got a true impact. And where it doesn't, then we're trying to educate back. And that does typically get rejected. But essentially, we're the triage and validation team. And then on top of that, there's other activities that we do in bug Crowd. Some I can't talk about because you know they're still still new and still growing but there's a whole range of other things that that security operations team does in different siloed departments that i run
0: that is varied so out of interest coming into this role would have been a a different experience from being a tester at ncc what what sort of interesting things have you that i've been involved in come across and what's been eye-opening for you
1: yeah i mean it's it's just a it's been a it's been a wild ride it's been a I guess for me personally, like I was bug hunting before I came in. So I was in the top 20 on Bug Crowd when I made the jump. So I was a pretty accomplished bug hunter myself. And I found I had that passion for it. I, I gave a talk at B-Sides Perth where I kind of made the point of I felt like there was a lacking of impact behind a lot of pen test reporting that was enforced in the bug bounty model. If you're in the bug bounty model, you... Are basically being paid around the impact that you deliver so poppy and xss alert one versus an xss account takeover has a diverse difference in incentive to a pen tester where if you do either you're still going to get paid the same you're just now going to be more behind on the engagement than you would be if you didn't and that always didn't sit great with me i don't think that necessarily pen testing is broken i think that each has their fit but i always found that deep dive, really simulate being a hacker, motivation behind bug bounties to have a really good calling behind it. And although I felt I was in a team with a lot of good pen testers, I did look at the market. I do see a lot of companies that are basically just delivering vulnerability assessments as pen tests. And that also kind of discolored with me a bit as well.
0: Yeah, understandable. Talking about your B-Sides Perth talk, was that 2017?
1: Oh man, I think so. <laughs> I remember we did a recording there as well. Possibly, possibly. It was in last year or the year before. I can't recall.
0: Yeah, well, I'll see it goes back in time and uh, I guess that's what I'd like to do is go back and really talk about how you got into the industry in the first place. I remember us talking years ago and yeah, how things have changed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean for me, I had some knowledge to lean on which helped. Like I knew, I think I'd, didn't have as much as I thought I did. At the time, I was a bit more confident than I probably should have been, <laughs> which I guess is a, isn't a bad thing when you're stri- striking out new. But uh, for me, the way I approached it, I wrote a lot of tools. So I, I self-paid to do the OSCP and I wrote Reconnoiter, which was a tool to organize myself, just to kind of demonstrate that I understood the functionings of different tools. And I have a 200-something projects under my repository now, but the time that I made the jump, there was 30-something projects I'd written and then I also spent a lot of time just catching up with people in the industry. So I'd go to sec talks, I'd get to know people, and I'd just tap people on the shoulder and say, Hey, can I buy you a beer and just ask you about your job? And I'd take as many takeaways from those chats as I could. A couple of people I met multiple times just to get that, you know, well rounded feel for the industry, I guess. And that helped to guide what I needed to know. I think it's one of those things these days you look online and there's just so much information, it becomes so daunting that if you don't get guided by community, you end up wasting a lot of your time.
0: I yeah. guess on that note, there's a lot of, let's say, mixed information I feel like out there as well.
1: Very true. Yeah, and that's, that also is a big contributing factor. Mixed information and also the difference between a general hacking guide and the qualities, the soft skills qualities needed to be a pen tester are quite diverse. Being able to demonstrate that soft skills is just as important. I mentioned this last time we chatted, but the, the key thing that I think a lot of people miss is when you write a blog... The blog isn't to demonstrate technical capability. It's to demonstrate your ability to explain technical concepts to non-technical people because it's a foundational skill of being a pen tester. And so things like that I caught on to early that allowed me to put my best foot forward when I started talking to companies to potentially move to. It's
0: interesting you mentioned that. I saw a tweet earlier today and someone wrote, if you could recommend one skill that you feel is most beneficial to learn within the infosec industry, what would it be? And I wrote The Ability to Communicate.
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, it's communicate or know where to get information. If you're well-networked in and you know who to ask about something, it doesn't matter if you don't know it, as long as you know where to go. And a lot of people feel daunted early on because they think that pen testers know everything and they have to know everything. The reality is we don't. Most pen testers are figuring out a technology on a engagement or referring to old notes when they've seen it before, but you're not recalling everything. Oh, you're often...
0: Impossible. Yeah. So.
1: yeah. And I guess a good tip there. I mean, one thing I did early on that really held me in good stead set up a local wiki for myself. And every time I learned something or I had a good conversation, I'd take notes. So if I, you know, had someone tell me, oh, it was soft skills are really important, I'd go and I'd look into that and I'd build myself out of notes on soft skills and update it over time. So I have one on reporting that I started before I even joined the industry and I've built on that. And that wiki, you know, every engagement or bug bounty or anything that I do, I always refer to it for different points.
0: Very nice. Out of interest, then, what's the I guess good and bad advice that you got along the way?
1: Yeah, <laughs> the worst advice I got was from a recruiter, not yourself, another recruiter <laughs> that I'll leave <laughs> unnamed.
0: I'm glad. I'm glad to say it's not <laughs> me.
1: There. I met up with a recruiter early on, and they told me it would take me five years to get into the industry, and that it was. An, they told me that everyone only cares about what hacks you've done, which is just stupid, stupid advice. And if I followed that five-year timeline, I'd be entering the industry this year. Or wow. next year, something like it would be still. There's such a such a ridiculousness around putting a timeline on someone because everyone has different capacities to learn, and everyone gets a different stroke of luck. Like luck is a big factor in it as well. Having the right opportunity at the right time, and I think that stuck to me is if anyone's trying to dictate your time to make that transition, they really don't have any foundation to place it on. It's everyone's going to have a different journey. Everyone's going to get different opportunities put in front of them. And one person might do it in a year and one person might do it in three, but that doesn't mean that there's a skills gap there. It's just that they saw different things to seize upon.
0: I think it's also someone could have five years experience of doing something, but someone else could have 18 months, but have achieved a lot more in that space as well.
1: Totally. And I mean, five years experience in this industry could be in the wrong technology for what the market's looking at at the time. You could be the most experienced network pen tester ever today and struggle to interview against people who are really good in web because that's where the market is right now. Whereas we throw back 10 years, it'd be the opposite. So it's really going to come down to what is a company seeking or companies and do you fit it?
0: Yeah. So what's the good advice that you picked up along the way?
1: Networking. Networking is key. I mean, that was the best thing early on. The best thing I did was go to sec talks early on because that gave me that like quick insight into how the community functioned. And one that's controversial, I think, was also get on Twitter and I took a lot longer to do that than I should have, but there's definitely a large element there. There's a lot of toxicity and there is a lot of elitism that kind of kicks through Twitter, but there's also a lot of good things that kind of come to your attention quickly if you curate, curate your network, right?
0: Yeah, well, with nearly 10,000 followers, you haven't done too bad.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, I think it's more around who you follow and what you follow. I think yeah. that's the the crux of it, right, is seeing something trending amongst a network that you've curated carefully helps quite a lot.
0: That's awesome. So networking, getting on Twitter, again, not, not for everybody, but that's been helpful. Anything else that's helped
1: you as well? It's a good question. I think contributing back, it would be the big thing there. So taking the time to step into, you know, different points of education and answering questions for people. I mean, a big part of how I got where I did in the bug bounty community was by answering questions. So I was a, a pen tester working fully remote. So the first hour of each day while I was winding up, I'd jump over different slacks and just answer any questions that hadn't been answered overnight. And that forced me, if I didn't know the answer, to go and learn something. So a lot of the time, you'd see someone with, oh, I've got this weird situation. I don't quite know how to XSS this. So I'd DM them and try and figure it out because it would teach me more as I I went along the way because I was getting an interesting situation. Or someone would be like, oh, I found this tool. I don't quite understand what it does. It would expose me to a new tool. So I learned a lot personally by giving back. And it also showed me gaps where... Opportunity could be created. So, you know, someone would be like, oh, you know, Sublist is not quite doing this. And that was part of what started the discussion between Iceman, myself, and Jason Haddock's at the time of how Subfinder would end up existing. Because, you know, there was this gap there. And we it was seen because of that activity, helping people trying to solve it with the tools they had. It just, you could really easily spot opportunity. So I think giving back, although people look at it, oh, it's so selfless, people giving back, there's actually a lot of selfishness behind it because <laughs> you're getting that insight and that, you know, that perspective on the community that someone who's just consuming won't ever see.
0: Yeah. Plus it's the right thing to do. I mean, if you're, if you're getting something from others, it's, it's good to give back and share your knowledge as well.
1: hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, that's, it's how we function. <laughs> open source runs it. So you need some sort of element behind that.
0: Okay. So just going back to that sort of phase. So before you were pen testing full-time, how did you, I guess, get that break from doing what you're doing? Because you work in the the Cancer Council at the time.
1: Yeah. So so I left, I was financial services developer for a couple of years. I left that and I went to Cancer Council and I was heavily involved in their digital team and a solutions architect at the time. So I came in, essentially, I was titled, titles stuck. They never quite reflect, right? But I (laughs) I was titled solutions architecture, but I was essentially solve problems, technology expert. So something would be put in front of me and I'd find a way to deliver it. And as a component of that, I was able to then fold security into my role. And I got a couple of years experience as a person on that side doing security just by nature of a charity. You can just grab at stuff. If there's an opportunity there, you can be like, hey, I want to take this on, I can solve it. And so I was able to do that and I was able to bring it in. And then along that journey, we received a pen test report from a big four and which will remain nameless, but they did a pen test for us. And leading into the test, I was like, oh, well, I want to see where they go. And so I set up honeypots over the network. I set up an IRC server on one of the servers and just things that should make it into any report. I set up like, you know, passwords list somewhere and things like that. And none of it. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it came back. The report came back. None of that hit the report. And then the report came back saying, hey, you've got these employees on LinkedIn. This exposes a risk to you. That was literally the only item on the report. I still got it somewhere because it was just hilarious to me. And that was actually the tipping point where I was like, you know, I need to dive into pen testing because this industry looks like it just doesn't know what it's doing, which totally the wrong statement, but that was the impression I got at the time. I don't think the industry doesn't know what it's doing, but receiving a report like that as someone with a bit of security knowledge and knowing how I would compromise that network really kind of stuck out to me. And so then that's when I bought the OSCP and I started networking in and Before that, I'd kind of seen pen testing as, oh, well, I haven't spent my whole career doing that. These other people have. I don't have a chance of getting that job. And then that one report kind of tipped it the other way to like, oh, these people, you know, I could do that. Yeah. And the more I got in, the more I realized, hey, there were actually people that like spent their career doing that that are phenomenal but the industry moves so quick, you can play catch-up. You can still learn your way in. If someone's done it for 10 years and someone's done it for two years, they can still be delivering the same level of impact depending on what they've been learning recently. And so, you know, it kind of opened my eyes to what was possible and that led to me eventually getting a pen testing role.
0: That's great. And I know from talking with you, that it's actually your ability to communicate. It's also played a big part in your role as a pen tester as well.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. It's, uh, I mean, I the last two jobs I had weren't advertised and it was just getting to know people, expressing a need and how I'd solve it. Like my pen testing job as well came by a referral. I mean, it's it's all comes down to, you know, I mean, I think people overthink jobs that you don't always have to wait for business to have a need. If, you're, if you think that you've got the right skill set and you approach a pen testing firm with, hey, I have my OSCP. This is my reporting quality. This is what I can do. A lot of them are probably higher off the back of that because they're always looking for talent. I mean, even I'd say, especially in this market, there's a lot of roles out there. And if you're starting out, you come in at a different price point to others, it becomes pretty expressed interest. So there's definitely an element of that at play.
0: Time for a quick break. I'm Ricky Burke. In my full-time role, I'm the founder and director of CyberSec People, a leading cybersecurity recruitment company, where we support organizations across the US and APAC in hiring cybersecurity talent. Through our connections and reach into the security community, our deep industry knowledge, we save organizations time when hiring. We have a 98% success rate and a three-year track record that demonstrates we only have to send, on average, two applicants to find success. If your organization is hiring, reach out as we'd love to discuss what that means for you. In the meantime, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I guess going forward a little bit, I know, you know, someone trying to land their first job as a pen tester isn't always that easy. Once you've got even six months on your CV or your LinkedIn as a pen tester, then suddenly things start flowing to you. I guess, how have you taken sort of your experiences trying to land those initial jobs into what you do today?
1: Yeah. I mean, so one of the first things I did here was to create an intake program. So essentially The thing that I found most lacking and still think is very lacking is that a lot of companies do graduate programs for the sake of doing graduate programs. They don't actually build any capability around it. And there's quite a lot that advertise it that don't actually hire anybody. They just like to advertise do for. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was one of the interesting discoveries because we on GitHub started a list of companies doing graduate programs and then tried to verify it. We could only verify one company that had ever actually done it. And so it's a bit... To be frank, disgusting that companies do that, but they do that for the customer optics. And so one of the early things I did was to hire a full-time trainer, Luke Stevens, and then to start hiring existing students. So not waiting for graduates, because I think that's a bit of a cop-out in itself, but hiring people that were actively in uni on a part-time basis with a full-time trainer and manager over the top of them to support that journey. So they have that supportive, look, I'm struggling with this, and they've got someone immediately to turn to who's not on a billable job or someone they can't turn to. And so that's been pretty key, like my way of, I guess I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't do that because I've been so critical of graduate programs. And if I didn't do one myself, then I'm just a hypocrite. And I don't think we've got it perfect and I don't think there's ever a perfect way to do it, but I do think that there's enough lessons in not just do it for the optics. Like we don't advertise it. This is the first time I think we've ever actually externally talked about it beyond just Slack and other places that. you know the motivation is different it's not something that we're like going in front of customers and being like look we're awesome we do graduates whereas that seems to be the case in a lot of other positioning
0: that makes sense well it may not be perfect but it sounds to be honest a lot
1: better than what most are doing out there Uh, well maybe it's hard to it's hard to get insights into that too right
0: well like Uh, you say you'd be a hypocrite if you maybe didn't try something but uh, from what i can hear and see it sounds like a lot of people getting some value and they're actually getting career opportunities and progression
1: yeah, well, we're into our ninth. We've just made offer onto our ninth one. So we've done, a, lot, done wow. a reasonable amount through there. So one that's gone on to his own career, like after that, which is good. And then others are just creating headcount and opportunity where it makes sense. It's it's easier for our model in some respects because we can tier out the types of work very easily. So on a validation front, you can say, look, we're only going to put this person on informational type reports and they'll escalate escalator if it looks like it's something more. And then gradually, as they learn different things, incorporate different elements and separate up, you know, so senior members only are the only ones seeing certain things, which is a lot easier than, say, pen testing or other things. But I think defensive teams could take that same approach pretty easily.
0: Yeah, well, especially and pen... the L1, L2s and, and different uh, yeah,
1: levels. Yeah, I don't think pen testing does it right either because they they tend to put people onto a job solo, or at least I haven't heard of anyone being put onto a a handover path where they start the job and then someone checks over it and hands it over. It tends to be the bait and switch, I guess, is talked about in the industry where it's like, <laughs> you'll talk to the senior on the phone call, but you'll get the junior delivering the test. That's something I think should never happen. I think it until someone's really got a bit of experience, you should have someone checking over that job to give them, not to say they don't have the skill, but to give them opportunity to learn because they'll also see the senior's workflow. There's Or you know, vice versa, they'll get to knowledge trade there. Whereas if you put someone straight into an engagement and there's not that handover or that collaborative working space, then they're not going to improve at the pace that they could without that influence.
0: So So normally with the guests, I I prepare some questions and I've shared some with you in advance. This one isn't prepared. I'm keen to get your feedback because I'm not sure which way you're going to take it. What are your thoughts on the the general headlines that we see around the cybersecurity skill shortage?
1: (laughs) I don't think there is one. (laughs) I did a... I'm trying to remember who I did. the. Re- I think for Cyberry I did a recording RSA on this, which is Yes, more, you did. Yeah. Elaborates on my opinion a bit more. I think there's an expectations gap. I think companies are trying to hire at the wrong price point. I mean, for, for context there, when I became a pen tester, like I had my OCP, I was billable quite quickly, but there was a 60K pay gap between some of my offers because some companies were trying to just undercut the market. And some of those companies now... Continue to do that, and certainly wasn't the only person to have that experience with at least one of them. And then there's the cry from those kind of companies of, "Oh, we we can't hire skilled people," and it's like, well, yes, you can. You just want to make too much profit out of the times you build them, and you're not prepared to run a bit leaner to have highly skilled people training lower skilled people. And I think that's, to be honest, the big crux of it. You look at places like SecTalks, the number of people looking for jobs compared to the number of jobs that flow through, but not all of those opportunities get filled because the it's just this massive gap there you've got jobs advertising market rates that are then like half of another position it's just ridiculous i hate the um and the um, the things
0: that say market rates like what does that even mean it's always it's
1: always yeah or self-starter and all those other terms that indicate they don't actually know what they're doing and they want to pay you less to do more and i think that's been i mean like we've noticed it just in like we've we've got talent in bug crowd by paying fair rates would being able to get highly skilled people very easily, and the more you get, the easier that becomes. But by paying properly at the market, you end up in a good position. And I think most penthouse firms making that cry of "Oh, there's you know there's not enough skilled people." If they shifted that algorithm a bit and they created other opportunities, I mean, training resources and committing to training budget and things are pretty key. If you don't do those things, you're not going to retain the talent because that's it. we're in a position where. It's not that there's, there's not a skill shortage, but there's certainly no shortage of work. It's, which sounds like it contradicts itself, but I guess what I'm trying to get at there is like someone skilled can ha- carry a much higher capacity at pretty much any firm and they know it. And so they're pretty aware of what they're worth because of that.
0: You mentioned about trading. That's an interesting topic at the moment.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's a controversial one in market. There's a few conversations that have been had around that, isn't there? yeah i mean companies companies not offering training it 's certainly those kind of things get known pretty quickly, and I think that's there 's a lesson there for companies that you know don 't take it seriously that it is something that people talk about, whether you want them to or you don 't want them to. those changes and those decisions made in the market make their way around it 's a very very networked community you know if someone 's starting out and training is as important as it is, then you give them different pieces of advice based on that i, I mean I would say at this point in for someone starting out, you'd be better off approaching boutiques with large training budgets and willing to build you up so you can get further in your career quicker than you would be to you know, make other sacrifices that hurt you. Even if you get the title that's associated with going there, you may not get the same opportunities in terms of building upon your skill set. So,
0: Remember, I spoke to a guy that last week who's working at an MSSP for a couple of years and he's had one bit of training in two years. And this this is someone who does a lot of self investment. Literally every other night, they're spending hours self learning, just stuff that, that they're passionate about. And you know, that's his sort of one of the main drivers. Just wants to work for a company that it will also give back. You know, he's happy to invest yeah. his his time, but just wants to see that reciprocated from an employer as well.
1: I mean, it was the same for me. Like NCC Group's very good for training. And That was something that I took pretty seriously going with them uh, as my like, pen testing jump is that the conversation I had there, the conversation I had with them orientated around, well, this is how we'll build you up. And was uh, they recognized that I had the skill set to a point and I had the strong soft skills because I'd managed people and done a lot of that kind of, the kind of signal points, I guess, to show I had that. So then the conversation turned to, well, this is what we'll do to teach you and this is how we can put you on a journey. And that, that stuck with me and that was ultimately one of the main deciding factors I've made.
0: That makes sense. So yourself now, position you're in, you've obviously tried to do things a bit differently. So you've you've got your sort of graduate program as such. What else can companies do, in your opinion, when it comes to hiring? How can they think differently or act differently to give themselves more options?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. I think hiring from the community is a key point of it. So I've made a point of trying to get into different communities for different Points of advertising, so you can't just hire from like SEC talks, for example, because then you end up hiring with a strong bias, strong white male bias, for example. So then, partnering with other companies, like partnering with Wisp, and talking to people who are on the, those kind of communities, and just getting as many feelers out there as you can into other networks, so that you can say, "Hey, I've got a role. Can you put it into your community and just see who's willing to apply." has been quite successful for us as well as I guess the, the benefit we have being such a public company that does make things easier. I think for a pen test company it's that network becomes so much more key. And I mean you've you've I see you do it yourself. You hire through SecTalks, you hire through B side CBR in different communities and different Slacks. And I think that is a bit of a key to it. And being open to not just hey work in the office in Sydney or Melbourne. Like I myself, I worked remotely from the Gold Coast, I know a lot of talented The people that have done that and go on that path and i think that's ultimately where we're headed as an industry is that this year if anything has proven people want to work from home and can work from home that they're going to be looking at those companies far ahead of the ones where they have to be on site i know i certainly don't intend to work on site ever again if i can avoid it i know a lot of people in that position so yeah
0: Yes Uh, yeah people don't want to be remote just for covid they actually want it long term. those options
1: yeah and i guess that's one of the benefits of a company like Bugcrowd, I mean, we were remote before it was cool, I guess is one way, to, one way to look at it. Like I started this job last November fully remote and my team is fully remote in six different countries. So if that can work and it's, you know, powerhouse in the industry running as much work as we do, why can't it work for a pen test company that's got more measurable outcomes and isolated work streams? So it to me, it, you know, as long as you spend time working out how the culture of the company is going to sit. So making sure that you've know it's you got active places for people to socialize, regular team meetings, people to you know, get together and meet in as well as regular, just drinks and catch-ups. I think those things are pretty key. But if you establish all of that, most pen testers are happier working from home and in a lot of roles because there are so many parts where you just need to go and learn something and dive down a rabbit hole, that's much easier to do in your own environment than it is in a busy office environment.
0: How did you find that? Because I guess going into your first role as a pen tester working remotely, so you didn't have the the opportunity to turn your chair to someone else and tap someone on the shoulder and ask for advice. How was that for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, my way is probably not the healthiest way. I solved it with hours. I put more time in than I would say most. I mean, I just, I overcommitted my time. That was it. Was a job that I really wanted. I was given the opportunity, and I really wanted to thrive. So I, I would work my day. I'd take a heap of notes of what I had to learn, and if I came across something that I wasn't sure, and it wasn't the end of the engagement, I'd put it into my night work. And so then, when the night came, I'd be like, okay, so I have to learn everything I can about J session ID because I saw that into the, in this HTTP app. Let's go down the rabbit hole, and then I'd build out my wiki and i build out my notes. So next time I came across that, I had my notes. And I did it that way. I just went down, you know, as many rabbit holes as I could. And I I made sure that I was spending my time effectively on that by having my work hours and my study hours very distinctly separated. So I'd I'd work my day, I'd have dinner, and then I'd study and pursued it that way.
0: You mentioned it there. there, And it's one of the things I guess I want to cover as well, is especially those that are aspiring to get into the industry. It takes a lot of Unfortunately, it does take a lot of time, dedication, and, and learning resources. So just to give some real insight, what, what did it take for you to get to the point where you know, you were getting offers and you were in a position to actually get offered jobs and accept a position?
1: Yeah, well, it's hard, right? I don't necessarily think my way is the only way. I think I... No, just your, I, your, your
0: experience, that's all I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess I... W- I think I'm not the smartest person in the world where I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I'm one of the harder working people in the room. Like I'll throw hours at a problem because I'm stubborn and I want to get there. And I think that's worked for me, but there's definitely people where it's like, they just have something, you know, that quality that you, you talk to someone, you're like, okay, they're going to succeed and they don't need to necessarily do that. So I do, I do want to kind of lead with, I brute forced my way through, but that's not necessarily saying that's what you have to do because it's not the healthiest thing to do either. I I've, I enjoy it. Like I like to be down that rabbit hole and that keeps me going. But for me, you know, I wrote tools. I did Vuln hubs and things like that. I, sec talks, I try and participate. And then once I had that pen test role, I continued doing that. So I continued looking for new opportunities and I've built quite a healthy collection of tools now because of that. At the moment, I'm investing a lot of time into YouTube. I want to come out of the gate with a heap of content there because it's forcing me down new rabbit holes. And just, I guess, looking at, well, what can I do to deliver some impact that's going to also benefit my learning journey? Like by writing a tool, you fully understand a problem. So Tim Kent and I wrote Vhost Scan together. And in writing that tool, I mean, this was before I became a pen tester. We wrote this tool. But in writing that tool, I learned all of the nuances that come in brute force forcing virtual hosts. That other tools couldn't do. I mean, Nmap's Vhost scanner is actually really, really bad because it just it doesn't work with any sort of dynamic data, for example. And writing a tool like it, it carved out a new niche opportunity there of something that didn't exist. And so, I guess I've always looked for that thing of, and not everything takes flight. I have so many private private projects that were just a waste of time in terms of public. <laughs> value but not a waste of time for me in terms of pushing my knowledge because i'd get far enough in to go you know what i really understand now why this tool exists you know and i don't need to release this because someone's done it better but now i understand why they did it the way that they did and there's a lot of that like you just you you get an understanding of the problem Mm -hmm. and i guess that for me has always been my approach is how do i commit my time in a way that's effective for me but I think that there's definitely people who don't have to do that and have i guess that's something else i don't know I don't know what term they're just smarter <laughs> so, you know that don't have to do that and they still succeed really well because they're just so quick to see it where I find that I find it it more effective for me to just I don't like to understand the surface I really need to deep dive and then i it all kind of clicks for me a bit maybe slower i guess and did you find
0: once you at i guess technically in the industry that slowed down or changed
1: or even stepped up it stepped up initially so it stepped up while i was a pen tester i have a i have a baby boy now so that's shifted i only do mo- so monday to wednesday nights i'll do extra stuff so i still commit and i have like carved out time and this is what i'm going to do so before it was i would just do bug bounties now that i'm on this side i don't do bug bounties as much because i don't well there's a level of access I have that makes it very difficult so I'm pursuing other things that are you know like want to put out there but I'm still keeping that time and that commitment just to keep me driven and keep me technical because mm-hmm. I am in a very management focused role as well trying to keep myself skilled on the tools and releasing tools is always like I don't know an interesting thing to me that I enjoy the thing that can be misrepresented is when people look at the time you put in and they say, oh, it's not a good work-life balance. It It is. It's just that my hobbies overlap with my work. I have a lot of... And it's not that I only have technical hobbies, but I really do enjoy that time of like, throw on the headphones and just write something. And it, to me, has always been a passion to do that. Even before security, like I used to write different things. I, was, I think the first thing I wrote was a IRC client when I was like 13, just because I wanted to make my own. I didn't like M-I-R-C. <laughs> so, you know... And so there's always been that, like, I just want to make something. And it's more tangible to me than security can be because often with security, you're breaking something and you don't necessarily fully understand it, but you understand it enough to break it. When you make something, you get a different experience. And so it's a lot of time in, but it's time that I feel I enjoy and it's just got the extra payoff of I get things that I can make public, so.
0: Nice. Well, I can't have someone that got to top 20 ranked as a bug bounty hunter for bug crowd about asking you about bug bounties. I guess what would be your tips for you know those people that are just starting out that want to start out or even that want to move up the ladder as well? You know, what, what helped you get to where you were or you know the the success that you had?
1: Yeah, so I guess bug bounties get misrepresented quickly where there's such a game of recon now and people think that's all it is. So the the main Pieces of advice to be successful and things that i think are most successful is to get very good at recon because you won't learn that as a pen tester and there's a lot of people that are probably offended at that but pen testing still is five six years behind the recon game and that's having spoken to a lot of pen testers that have been successful bug bounty hunters you learn it in the bug bounty space what do Um, you think that is because it's not a big part of pen testing externals on pen tests are time-based engagements that don't have the same depth requirement because you're not getting incentivized the same and red teams are so passive that the tooling's just never really been there and it's no it's not a skill set that i like web for pen testers is not seen as a as the same level of specialization as for bounties where it's like you get really good at web i think that a lot of pen testers get passionate about it but then they end up doing bug bounties to improve it and then they learn a lot more in the bug bounty space necessarily than on the day job you know i know there's people that are probably offended by that but i just genuinely don't think and you know i'm happy to be corrected but i just i just don't think that there's really any this is not the same depth anyway that's a whole other whole <laughs> other divergence but i guess the skill yeah. that comes into bug bounties is understanding where the perimeter is changing not just understanding the perimeter so If you're just focused on recon and you recon the entire asset space of the company and then you start hacking, you're not as successful as someone that recons it today, recons it next Monday, and recons it the Monday after and has built tips and techniques for tracking change. So for me, that tracking was done by hashing page content and when it changed, then using Levenstein to check for the measurement in page difference content. If you want code for that, it's in VHostScan, But essentially... Looking for the divergence of change allows you to see where a company is making current points of change, which is where the more recent vulnerabilities are most likely to be. I mean, bug bounty companies with a bug bounty program receive reports like crazy, and so if you want the most chance not to dupe, it's to be looking at the points where things are changing more re- more regularly and going deep on that. And Recon isn't about just finding subdomain takeovers and open admin boards; it's about finding where to look. So if you can find those assets, you now then should make sure you've developed your skill set through Pentester Labs and other places in web application hacking to deep dive those assets. So it really understanding you know, what makes it tick, how do, I, how do I dig in, and how do I discover this? And things that you know, then you can, if you want further success, looking into things that others aren't looking into very deeply. So I guess point of reference now that I think the whole industry still hasn't really shifted to is it's a blind NoSQL injection. So, it, no SQL and sorry, blind SQL injection is very understood, but you can do blind NoSQL injection. There's no tooling for that yet. So, you have to write it personally. And so, there's a lot of chicken and mouse like that in bug bounties. DNS brute forcing is another one. I've got a private DNS brute forcing tool. I know Donut does, and others do as well. A lot of solving problems that don't exist in open source yet will give you a benefit over others who are looking for assets in the same space. And that's, that's I guess, crux back to that argument of, how does bug bounty, how do good bug bounty hunters find those extra assets? Is tricks like that, that once you're well established in that community, you might know and understand them. The outside in, they're not as well known. And there's a lot of those kicking around in that space that do reveal some pretty significant attack surface.
0: Sounds like some good tips
1: yeah to a point <laughs> it's always well yeah there's a whole there's a whole discussion we could have on that but uh yeah
0: there's a whole nother podcast there <laughs> yeah yeah or even series but that's great and again for people just starting out that's I think wise advice as well though. so thank you for that and and overall um thanks for your help and your time it's been great to catch up as always and some valuable learning tips people along the way and great to hear about your journey
1: yeah uh, thanks for having me take care yes
0: Thanks for listening. And if you've got any questions, comments, please reach out to me. You'll find me online anywhere, CyberSecRicky. And if you would like to be involved in the future, maybe be a guest, uh, then reach out as well. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. Bye.